0: Hello, thank you, and welcome to our session. In case that uh, you don't know, we are in session ENT 31 a Landing on Design, and what happens with a company splits in half. My name is Fabian Lavat. I'm a solutions architect at AWS, and I have the pleasure of sharing the stage today with Dalton Conley, a cloud solutions architect, architect from Thomson Reuters. Our goal for this session today is to show you what happens with a company cloud infrastructure with large enterprise like Thomson Reuters, divest one of their largest business units. So i to gonna start to by telling you a story, a typical story of what happened with many companies in the last 10 years. Some developer had a great idea. They pulled their favorite text editor, started writing some code, and once the code was ready to publish, be published to a testing environment in the data center, they knew the requesting those servers in a testing environment may take six to eight weeks or even more in some cases. However, he just heard about this uh, great thing called Elastic Compute and AWS, the AWS Cloud. With a few clicks, he can spin up hundreds or thousands of servers in a matter of minutes and pay only for the time those servers were running. Sometime later, more and more developers and more teams with great ideas across the company, develop and deploy applications to AWS. This was great. Each of these developers use the corporate credit card, or maybe even sometimes their personal credit cards. They went to aws.amazon.com, created a new AWS account, and started spinning resources and deploying applications to AWS. This was great, great success. Companies like Thomson Reuters, and products like Reuters.com, with 17 globally, global editions and serving millions of customers with the latest business and financial news, were saving 66% of their infrastructure costs by running fully in AWS. Or Product Insight, a solution that enables teams to capture, analyze, and visualize data generated by their applications. Product Insight launched two months ahead of schedule and was a success and exceed all technical expectations. There's some problems, of course. Now we have companies with hundreds of AWS accounts and billing accounts and bills, individual bills going to these users. You may have hundreds of corporate credit cards used or personal credit cards and people filling expense reports. I'm sure a lot of people in the company were not happy about that. These accounts were individual accounts and they have very limited connectivity to the on-prem data centers, maybe, some of them, they have some VPN connections they were able to establish. There was a lot of duplication of effort. There was not much shared services on those accounts. They have isolated identity life cycles. So what happened when that developer left the company and had that IAM role, uh, you have to go and those teams manually have to disable those access keys and remove that account. Security and other teams were not too happy about the limited set of governance tools they had. And the aggregate of all that expense of hundreds of accounts, those accounts were not eligible for volume discounts that AWS provides. What about, let's say, move everything to a, a single account and move all those applications that were developed and run in a single AWS account? That's not a great idea. Accounts are great, but service teams and applications may have security and resource boundaries. With AWS, we have service limits, some are soft, some hard limits, and what happened when an application went wrong or somebody made a mistake and launched 1,000 EC2 instances? Now, the other application, maybe in another business unit that was running fine, they were not able to scale when they needed to. Maybe teams and applications have a specific set of security controls. They need some kind of isolation of their resources. Maybe the business processes are different. And also you increase the blast radius. If something goes wrong in one of those applications, those accounts may affect other applications run as well. So let's talk about multi-account strategy. You probably from the keynote today, you saw a lot of announcements about that. And we, we have a few, a lot of sessions regarding multi-account strategy and landing zones. So what is a landing zone? A landing zone is a secure environment based on AWS best practices where teams can start developing new applications and experiment with cloud infrastructures. It's also a great station point and starting point for existing applications that you may want to move from prime environments to the cloud. It should allow quick iteration and fast experimentation and also extension over time. When you think about building a landing zone even before we had the, the facility like service like Control Tower today that lets you do that in, in a very, with a few clicks. You have to ask yourself a few questions. There are plenty of decisions when building this landing zone and this multi-account strategy. How many accounts do, you, do I need? How are we gonna connect the networks? How are we gonna connect these BPCs between each other or connect to the data center? And how are we gonna manage security and governance in those accounts? At the end, customers in AWS Like you, what they want to do is they deploy application in secure environments. They want to adhere and comply with policies on the enterprise. They want to be able to scale and be highly available as much as possible. And they want to be flexible and be uh, able to change when the business requirements change. So let's go deep on the requirements for each of those accounts, individual requirements for each of those accounts in the organization. So on the security side, the baseline requirements that you should have in every account in your landing zone is you need to secure your root account by enable MFA. You want to enable security tools for all regions in AWS, like CloudTrail and Config. You want to be able to map security roles and enterprise roles in those accounts. Enable federation, so the identity lifecycle It's uh, it's solved with federation and tie that to maybe your Active Directory, for example. And your security team and your compliance team, they need to be able to audit by having read access to these accounts and also write access in case they need to remediate any security incidents. And the networking side, you need to think about how you're going to design the VPC, how you're going to interconnect these VPCs together, how you're going to connect to your... On-prem data centers, IP allocation, that's still a thing. You need to decide the IP allocation for each account and each BPC on each region. You need to establish how you're going to do DNS resolution, for example, and you want to enable BPC flow logs in each of those BPCs. So we see a typical organization in a landing zone. You have what we call the organization's master account. This account is the first account that you create. And should have no connection to any on-premise environment or even to other VPCs in the network. It's where you establish service control policies, policies that you can establish at the account level or even organizational unit, and say, I want to whitelist or blacklist one specific service or set of actions in AWS for the whole account, maybe to comply with some compliance, like Keep financial out. compliance. And share have really minimal resources, almost no resources, definitely no EC2 machines running on, on it, and very limited access. Then we have what we call the organizations accounts. These are what we can think about the share accounts that every other business unit application or product in the company will use. The first one we have here is what we call the log archive. This is where all the CloudTrail logs BPC flow logs and security logs will be stored in S3. Those S3 buckets should be version, should have enabled restrict MFA delete for those buckets. A few days ago, we released a new feature in S3 where now you can do object locking. So maybe it's a good idea to say, you know, logs will cannot be deleted or will cannot be deleted by anybody for a period of time that you decide to keep them. And of course, a little uh, really limited access to that account is required you have also a security account this is where you will control security tools from aws like config and cloud trail as well as other security tools from partners that you may be using then you have the shared services account this is where you then deploy maybe your DNS servers, your Active directory or file sharing services across the need to be available across all of the accounts in the organization. Then in a the landing zone, you have what you call the developer accounts. These are your sandboxes. Ideally, every developer or anybody that wants to work and deploy something to AWS, for, you know, to play and experiment with it, Maybe at the, at the team level or the developer level, you should have a developer sandbox. This account should be limited for experimentation, learning, so you shouldn't have no production data or connection to other VPCs with production data or on-prem environments. Then you have a group of accounts that we, like three names we like to call the BU, business units or product or resource accounts. This will depend how you're gonna split those accounts between uh, a your organization. In this uh, group of accounts, you have maybe a team share account, maybe that team or that application needs to share some resources, or that business unit needs to share some resources inside uh, that organization, that part of the company. That's why you use a team share account. This is where your production environment will be and your, maybe your pre-production, and dev, depending on how you manage your environments. And these are the accounts that would be connected and the network sense to other accounts, other VPCs, as well through direct connect or VPNs to your on-prem environment and your data center. And that last, an optional network account that you can manage the direct connects and maybe offer those hosted BIF to other accounts in the organization. So I want to introduce uh, Dalton. He will uh, give you the interesting part of this presentation. Thank you so much. <laughs>
1: Thanks, Fabian. Uh, Hi, everybody, I'm Dalton Conley. I'm a cloud solutions architect for Thomson Reuters. Um, I work on a group, kind of a central cloud group within the company, and one of the responsibilities of that uh, group includes landing zone and managing the landing zone and and things such as that. Um, I'm gonna talk today about the Thomson Reuters specific implementation of a landing zone and as it pertains to a divestiture that we did this year, 2018, and some of the technical as well as organizational challenges that we faced. So a little background on Thomson Reuters. We provide intelligent information, technology, human expertise um, to professionals in the legal, tax and accounting, and media markets. Um, We're a very large organization. We've operated in over 100 countries for 100 years, over 100 years. Um, We rely on the world's most trusted news source, Reuters News, which happens to run on AWS. So Fabian talked a lot about the landing zone, what it means, the idea, the concept, some of the AWS pieces you can utilize to build a landing zone. Uh, And this is kind of what the Thomson Reuters landing zone uh, looks like now. So we have an organization's master account. All of our accounts are joined up to that account. The kind of middle row there, we we have sort of a, a bunch of shared services that we maintain. And actually up until about a year ago, we maintained all of those shared services in a single account, or most of them anyways. And it turned out we, we actually didn't like that. We wanted to reduce the blast radius of any issues that would occur in any of those accounts. So we split it out. You can see here I, I list a Bastion account, a DNS account, centralized logging as Fabian, Fabian suggested. There's also Direct Connect and a few other accounts that we maintain from a landing zone perspective. I also have some, some arrows pointing to the DNS account. Those represent VPC peering, and actually this has changed over the probably the past month or so uh, before submitting this deck, of course, but uh, it, it's VPC peering. We rely on that for, for DNS resolution to our data centers. The bottom row represents our sort of product account offerings. So if you will, we we've sort of divided it into various customer segments. So we have a tax products, we have legal products, uh, and also the financial and risk products. And so those, those th- this is pretty high level, but it, essentially the tax products might be a grouping of products. It could be a pre-prod and a prod. It could be divided into many things such as a product platform or even down to an individual product. I'll also add that all of these accounts are joined to obviously VPC peering like I mentioned. So the non-overlapping IP space for things such as the VPCs running in accounts is very important. And the the Direct Connect account that's not displayed up here uh, goes back into our data center. And so we rely on these accounts being joined to our existing network. Some other infrastructure that we have that sort of supports our landing zone, single sign-on. We utilize Active Directory and a SAML provider in our data center, and we essentially map groups in Active Directory to uh, roles in AWS. We also use the AWS Identity Provider service to coordinate our federated logins. (coughs) We maintain sort of a large automation library repository, if you will, that helps us orchestrate our entire landing zone. It's written in Python. We utilize CloudFormation, and actually an open source library called Troposphere. We also have a workflow engine that orchestrates sort of the order in which we run these CloudFormation stacks. So think about creating the identity provider prior to creating the VPC in the account, its workflow. We also have some loose integration with ServiceNow. Imagine a developer wanting to get access to an account. they will go to ServiceNow, submit a form, and a workflow will kick off, and essentially some background stuff happens. They get added to the right Active Directory groups, and they now have access to the accounts. So automation is good. So you probably can't see the dates on the slides. They're very small. I took this little snippet from Reuters.com in January of 2018 this year, we woke up to the news that we were going to sell a large portion of our financial and risk business. I'm going to refer to that as FNR from now on, to Blackstone. And as you can imagine, it, it's ironic that Reuters presented this news outside of the Standard Thomson Reuters business. Uh, but also, lots of questions going through people's minds, right? As an employee, you know, the personal things like, what does this mean for my job as an employee? Am I going to have a job going forward? Am I going to work for financial and risk? Am I going to work for Thompson Reuters? I don't know. Uh, but also things like, what does this mean for our systems? How are they going to work? This is a very large part of our company. They're heavily integrated throughout all of these pieces, shared services everywhere, so what does this mean for the technology, especially the landing zone technology that the cloud team maintains? So prior to, or after January, sorry, uh, senior management got together, and had a discussion and tried to figure out how this was going to work, right? What does this mean? What, is the, what are the processes we're gonna follow? What are we gonna do with technology? All of this and came up with this plan and, and we roughly started executing on this plan in March but really they gave us a goal that was to make cloud work for both companies. And they gave us a great deadline for March we had till June so uh, no wasted time there. So one big piece to this was really our team. And prior to the divestiture, the company split, our landing zone team was fairly siloed with good reasons for this, right? It's very systems engineering focus. A lot of the landing zone engineers knew a lot about networking. They knew a lot about uh, Unix and Linux systems, very low-level stuff. Uh, And we relied on them to do these things. And actually, we had a hunch going forward that most of the landing zone team, not all of them, but most of them would be sort of allocated to the new financial and risk company. So we had our work cut out for us on this. If you you look at our teams, we have multiple teams within the cloud uh, central organization. We call ourselves the Cloud Center of Excellence. We have a, a team that focuses on continuous operations. So things like, how do I do logging and monitoring in the cloud? We also have a team that focuses on CI, CD. How do I build code and deploy code into the cloud? Obviously the landing zone team, a data management, sort of data services, RDS focus, migration, data migration, all of that. There's a team that focuses on those things. And really going forward, what we wanted to do is position ourselves so that we didn't have a siloed team, but also we had a team that had a bunch of knowledge and experience uh, different experiences from other teams and other sort of focus areas within our company. So we got together, we, we got a team of roughly five people to do this split, plus or minus. Uh, some engineers, an architect, a person to lead the team. And we set off and one of the big things with this was really working with the existing landing zone team figuring out things like documentation, right? When you're when you're moving fast and you're trying to innovate and you're building out landing zones and, and things like that, documentation can kind of go by the wayside. So really, when you get a new team that needs to be onboarded, you start to focus on those things and you start to realize, hey, our documentation isn't that great. Maybe we need to improve it. And of course, we had to do sort of cross-organizational training because most of the people that joined this new team had no experience in working with the landing zone, doing things like networking, all of that stuff. And of course, like I mentioned, the goal really for this team was to make cloud work for both companies. Another piece to our divestiture was access auditing. And this kind of encompasses a bunch of things. So if you look at access auditing and sort of who has access to the cloud in our company, you have Active Directory, right? You get into a group with Active Directory, you get access to a role in a cloud account. So it was fairly straightforward to do auditing on this, right, you can run reports on Active Directory, you can spit out a list of who's in what group, all of those things. You can remove people from groups that they shouldn't be in. Really the goal here is to make sure that no one from Thompson Writers has access to a financial and a risk account and vice versa. Some things that we were missing in this, however, were IAM policies and and cross-account access when it came to AWS and, and the services running in our AWS accounts. And if you think about shared services, maybe I have some service that does builds and I share that between all of my Amazon accounts. And I have some IAM policies that really focus on, you know, giving access to, from my Jenkins or whatever it happens to be in the cloud to all of my other accounts. So we didn't really have a good way to audit this, and we actually built a tool, we used Python and Lambda, and if you think about running this across 100 accounts, roughly, and thousands on thousands of IAM policies, you need to use Lambda for the scale of this. So we built this tool, it essentially spit out a report that would audit all of our IAM policies and determine which policies were were accessing other accounts, excuse me. And so you might be asking, well, why didn't you just use the tool to fix the permissions on all of these policies? I'm gonna get to that later, but essentially we have shared services that operate across all of these accounts, and we certainly didn't wanna cause any production issues. So like I mentioned earlier, we do use AWS organizations, and all of our accounts are joined to our organization and if you think about splitting our cloud stack, our cloud infrastructure into two different accounts, or two different organizations and companies, we really need another organization, AWS organization's account. And so, at the time, we were actually lucky, lucky enough to be working with AWS Professional Services on sort of an account creation pipeline. And really, the goal of this was to be able to split accounts out as fast as we could. And so This ran in AWS code pipeline, and we would go in, we would click a button whenever we wanted a new account, and out out would pop a new account, and it would be joined to our AWS organization. So it worked really well. In fact, uh, one thing that I did not mention is that on top of the landing zone split stuff that we had to do, we also had to continue our our quarterly commitments and our yearly commitments. And so without this account creation pipeline, we most certainly could not have made all of our commitments. We would not have reached our goals in this quarter. We wouldn't have had the time to create all these new accounts, uh, join them to the organization, all of these things, as well as meet our, our existing yearly goals. So one thing that I do want to mention is our account creation pipeline doesn't really connect to our landing zone automation, so the piece that creates VPCs and subnets. We're working on this, there's some issues with uh, IP management obviously that we need to overcome, but this is something that we're working on and hoping to have this entire pipeline connected and essentially create an account, hook up the VPCs, manage everything all at once. So after we ran our account pipeline, this is sort of what our account infrastructure looks like. So we have two organizations accounts, we have a bastion service for both Companies, we have a DNS service for both companies, centralized logging, every other shared service that we have except uh, things like Direct Connect. So we left our Direct Connect in place, and this kind of came down to what we would call a TSA or Transitional Service Agreement, which is something that you might have heard of if you've ever dealt with a divestiture. Um, but essentially, we're utilizing the existing Direct Connect that was in place that's going to go along with the FNR company. This also goes along. With, this also goes with our Active Directory setup. So we are currently sharing Active Directory as two different companies, and there's actually a very large initiative through our data center teams that are that are working on sort of the next generation of Active Directory, as well as along with our Direct Connect and, and the WAN solution that we currently have. So with some pitfalls and gotchas. This is probably my favorite slide because it kind of talks about you know the dirty things, right? So hard coding, right? I, I know all of you have hard coded before. It's, it's a thing that we do because we wanna move fast and we wanna get things done. We have a internal asset identification system in, in our company and essentially every product within the company gets a six digit number, if you will. Well, going forward, the two companies are going to operate as two different asset identifiers, right? So we're getting a new asset number, they're getting a new asset number, whatever, whatever happens there. But our landing zone automation didn't really account for this, right? It's not really something you think about when, when you're writing automation. Is my company ever gonna split? Probably not. So that was one piece. We had to sort of go through all of our automation and fix that type of thing. Uh, our naming conventions in AWS typically include an asset identifier on them. And so when you think about things like CloudFormation stacks, which you can't currently rename, it kind of becomes an issue. So redeploying a lot of shared services with the new asset ID, a lot of things like landing zone, re- retagging our VPCs, all of those things. S3 bucket naming conventions, you probably don't think about this either. Obviously, these are global and if you think perhaps our centralized logging bucket maybe starts with a Thompson Writers hyphen prefix, right? This was an issue with our automation, right? It's something that we had to go in and we had to update and fix, and it's something that sort of held us up, but we got through it. I'll also add we have an extensive sort of account configuration file. It's basically JSON. It maintains things like, network ranges, CIDR ranges, uh, what regions an account is going to run in, all of those things. So we had to go through and make sure that that was sort of squared away with our split. Some other things, I mentioned DNS, VPC peering. There's, of, there's other peering going on in an account uh, at, at any given time, it may not just be DNS, it may be to another account randomly. So we had to make sure, make for certain that the Thomson Reuters accounts weren't peered to an FNR account or vice versa, right? From a connect, from a network connectivity perspective. We also took some time to, as part of our automation and our new account pipeline, to enable GuardDuty. And so whenever we create a new account, guard duty is automatically enabled. SaaS providers, we we use a lot of SaaS. I'm sure everyone uses a lot of SaaS. Your logging vendor, your your monitoring vendor if you need more complex things other than CloudWatch. And so if you think about from a vendor management perspective and and dealing with TSAs with the other company and who's gonna take ownership of what accounts in the vendor, this is something that our team didn't necessarily have to deal with, but we certainly had to help teams understand uh, some of the issues involved. I mentioned ServiceNow. If you don't know ServiceNow, basically every resource in ServiceNow gets a CI record. And so you can imagine every single one of our accounts having its own CI record and these having owners. If the owners moved to the other company or they stayed with Thompson and the account went to the other company, we had to make sure and go through all of our ServiceNow records and make sure that this was updated and and that everybody had the correct access and ownership for all of our CI records. We also have a third party financial management tool that we utilize. We had to stand up another one of these and we had to make sure that from an access perspective, this tool had access to the new accounts that we created as well as access to the right accounts from an, a- from an auditing perspective. What financial data can the FNR business see and what financial data can the Thompson Reuters business see? And lastly here, uh, developer tools and code repositories. You don't, you don't really think about this one tool that we have allows developers, it's a command line tool, allows developers to log into AWS and generate STS tokens for temporary logins and, and assume roles. And so it, it, it makes development slightly easier when you're logging in and running AWS CLI commands. We had to split this repository, and that's just sort of one of them, right? We had to make sure that this, uh, this tool works for both companies. And we had to split the code repositories, and from a landing zone perspective, I'm guessing it wasn't too many repositories, maybe 20, 30, but it's still something that you should keep in the back of your head. Uh, it was not a uh, front of mind for me. Some last, last thoughts here. So data applications and migrations. Um, I, this, this is sort of a learning slide. So infrastructure as code is extremely important if you're not practicing this. You will certainly understand why you should have practiced it if you ever have to do a divestiture. If you think about some of the shared service pieces that I mentioned, if an account is running in a Thomson Reuters account and and a shared service is going to go with the financial and risk business, well, they need to do a migration. Teams that utilize infrastructure as code, this migration was super easy for them, right? They tore their CloudFormation stack down, went into the other account and launched their CloudFormation stack. Maybe there's some d- data migration going on there, but either way, they had it in a code repo, and a develop- and it was documented, and the developer could easily run it. Another thing on the shared services, and this kind of goes back to the TSAs and transitional service agreements, but we certainly have services that are running in Thompson Reuters accounts that are being shared to FNR business accounts. And this is something that we sort of do on a TSA basis only. If you're, if, you're, if you're doing this and you don't have an agreement to do this for a long extended period of time, then you're going to get shut down. So um, There are some other landing zone sessions that I want to point out, and some of them have passed, but if you get the opportunity, I recommend going to them. Landing zone is an extremely important concept to Thomson Reuters, and it helps us manage our hundreds of accounts in AWS. I'll also add that we're gonna have a mic going around for questions, so thank you, appreciate it. I know it's late. It's been a long day for everybody. Thanks for coming. Thank you.
0: Yeah, and if you have any questions, we have uh, a mic about Landon and or about Thompson-Royers. Thank you. Do you have any questions? A mic. I'll repeat the question. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm just sort of wondering like when you uh
1: started with the landing zone, um and did you have experience any issues in terms of uh division of responsibility within the teams that uh, you know, were involved with you know putting things and standing
0: it up? Repeat the question.
1: Um so the question was: did we have any issues dealing with uh responsibilities of various teams in, in the landing zones that assumption, okay. Um, So our our team sort of started out of of a central organization, the Cloud Cloud Center of Excellence I mentioned, and they sort of maintained the landing zone and provided a service to the rest of the company. So from that perspective, it was very centralized. We were able to say, here's, you know, from an access and auditing standpoint, here's your account and here's how you give permissions to others to use this account. Um, Yeah, did I answer your question? Yeah, I'll say that our, our landing zone is very, um, we, we aren't using sort of the, the control tower pieces, if you will. It's, it's very, it started probably about four years ago. And so we have a lot of things that we had to build up on our own at the time because Amazon hadn't offered
0: a service yet. And if it was today, yeah. and you have to create a new organization, a new uh, landing zone, yeah. you probably can't use a service like uh, control a tower or, or yes, yeah. or a vending machine. A
1: questions
0: okay thank you so much coming